0: Today our scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 26. We'll be reading verses 30 through 35. Matthew 26 verses 30 to 35. It's on page 832 if you have a copy uh, of the scriptures from the back stands. In this particular passage, it is just prior to Jesus being crucified. And uh, in this passage, he makes some predictions, his death, his resurrection But he also predicts the denial of him by the disciples. So Matthew chapter 26 verses 30 through 35. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, You will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. This is God's word.
1: Thank you, Larry. Well, good morning, church. Um, one of the uh, things that we have not addressed yet this morning is we had, kind of had a big event on Tuesday. Uh, some things happened in our nation. Uh, every four years we go through this cycle, and this was a particularly difficult and challenging season. I think all of us are exhausted from 600 and some days of an election season, and... Um, and and I want to say something to us about it because one of the one of the challenges we have as a past, as pastors is that we're shepherding people who are in very very different places um and who are experiencing a wide range of emotions and so I just want to speak into that for a little bit this morning um before I jump into our, our sermon because I want to shepherd our hearts and I want to say a few things to us in response to our election uh today I think we could say is it's a new era for our country. Uh, Donald Trump is the president-elect of the United States, and uh, some of you are no doubt rejoicing. Um, Others of you are no doubt grieving or concerned. Uh, To some of you, the election was a dream come true. To others, it was like a nightmare that you woke up to. And I believe all those emotions are in the room at the same time. Others of you may not know what to think or feel. Your head is just kind of spinning like what just happened. And as your pastors, we just want you to know that we're praying for you. We're praying for our country. And I just want to share three little things with you. Number one, part of being a diverse congregation is living and having relationships with people who hold very different views than ourselves. And and that's fun and that's good. And I just want to encourage us. To be gracious in our speech, especially when we speak to those who are um, who hold different positions than we do. Uh, we should avoid making sweeping assumptions about why people voted the way they did. Or why people think certain things are good or not good. And it's good to have open and honest dialogue, but what we must avoid is being harsh and accusatory in our speech. And just ask yourself this question this morning, how can I love those um, who feel very differently than I do this morning. And maybe you just, that's the first realization for you just to wake up and realize, not everybody feels the same way I feel this morning. Number two, we want to give space for people to both rejoice and grieve. Uh, for some, this seems like a great day for a number of reasons. Maybe it's the sanctity of life. Maybe it's other issues that concern you. And it seems like a great day, but for others... It's, it's, it's a hard pill to swallow. For example, some minorities among us may be concerned that they woke up to a world where they may feel even more marginalized. And so while God is in control, he is king forever. And there are some who are hurting and some who are rejoicing. And we should grieve with those who grieve. We should rejoice with those who rejoice. And number three, um, I want to say for all of us, I want to encourage us to turn to Jesus. To just run to Jesus. He loves us and he is present with us. Um, He's the only one, folks, that can bring true hope and comfort to our country. He's it. He's the only one that can bring true hope and healing and change to America. We do not put our hope in government. We put it in the Lord. And he is the king and the ruler that we have all been longing for so desperately. And guess what? He is on the throne. And he is the chief ruler of our nation because he's the God of all nations. And so we're, we're in great hands with God this morning. So no matter how you feel, we're in great shape because we serve an awesome King. So I hope those thoughts are helpful for us as we sort of think about how to love and care for one another as a church. Now let me pray before we dive into God's Word. Father, we are very thankful to be here this morning. And one of the things we're thankful for is freedom of religion that we can practice this morning freely um, our faith, that we can preach God's word, that we can teach it, that we can do it openly, that we can walk around on the street and openly share Jesus, that we can come into a building like this and have total freedom. It's just absolutely amazing. And so we pray now that your word would penetrate our hearts deeply and that we would be affected by it freshly this morning. So thank you for Matthew 26, and I pray that it would sink deep into our heart and soul. And I pray that you would, Lord, anoint me, anoint my lips, and give me power and anointing from your spirit to preach uh, w- with precision and with a transforming effect to our church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever been betrayed I think i suppose you just have to live long enough uh for that to become a reality in your life the irishman oscar wilde once said a true friend stabs you in the front maybe you need to think about that for a moment proverbs 26 7 might help you faithful are the wounds of a friend but how would you respond if a friend stabbed you in the back In January 44 B.C., Julius Caesar was appointed dictator for life, but he was assassinated less than two months later. He was murdered by his own senators on March 15th. The conspiracy against Caesar encompassed as many as 60 men, including Caesar's own protege, Marcus Brutus. Caesar not only trusted Brutus, but he favored him as a son. And according to Roman historians, Caesar first put up a great resistance to this onslaught of assassins. But when he saw Brutus among them with his dagger drawn, Caesar pulled the top part of his robe over his face, and he uttered the famous words, Et tu Brute? And you, Brutus? That betray That's betrayal. And often when it happens, the one who is hurt... And the one who is betrayed, if they live, unlike Julius Caesar, they often take matters into their own hands. Because there's this impulse that all of us have that says, I want to hurt you because you hurt me. However, in this text this morning, Jesus Christ is deeply betrayed by his close friends. And I want you to notice that by by Judas and by all of his disciples, including Peter, but he responds... Not by killing them, but by continuing on the path to be killed for them. Now, this morning, I want you to notice two main themes as we walk our way through this chapter. And I want to show you the unfaithfulness of the disciples and the faithfulness of Jesus. In the midst of great, great unfaithfulness on the part of the disciples, Jesus remains a faithful savior. And despite our own unfaithfulness... Jesus remains faithful to us. So let's start with that. The unfaithfulness of the disciples, and we see four examples of this. The first is in verses six through thirteen, and I would characterize this as indifference—indifference indifference to the Savior. Verses six through thirteen. Now I'm not going to spend much time on this because this is the scene where Mary, her her name is Mary, we know that from Luke, comes in. She's a woman of of many sins comes into Simon the Pharisee's house, and she wets Jesus' feet with her tears and anoints his head with very costly oil. So we have preached on that text a number of times here in the last few years. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. And yet she knows how much Jesus has forgiven her, and she's profoundly, profoundly thankful. So much so that, as I said, she breaks probably an heirloom, a very expensive alabaster jar of expensive ointment and pours it on jesus head but notice verse 8 that when the disciples saw it they were happy about it they were thrilled by it they were uh understanding of the of the no they were indignant they were angry now think about this they were indignant saying why the waste Now, can you imagine Jesus being in this room this morning, somebody bringing something super expensive, anointing the head of Jesus and somebody else in the congregation standing up and saying, you're wasting that on Jesus. So just trying to think about this emotion. I mean, this this moment here, why why the waste? And then the, the statement is for this could have been sold for a large sum of money and given to the poor. Now, they obviously don't understand the gravity of the moment. I think their hearts are cold, and unlike Mary, they do not sense the magnitude of their own sin, nor do they sense the greatness of what Jesus is for them. What do we learn from this? Well, two things I want to say, and then we'll move on through the text. Number one is we learn that unrestrained devotion, which is what Mary has, unrestrained devotion for the Savior is evidence of a new heart. This is what true conversion produces, affection for the Savior, because hear this, where there is profession of faith in Jesus, without affection for Jesus, something is really wrong. So people can profess faith in Jesus, but there needs to be a commensurate affection for him. And that means if you are unresponsive in worship, unaffected by the truth, uninterested in preaching, uninvolved in the local church, unaware of your sin, then it would appear, appear that unlike Mary and and uh, unlike Mary's great affection for Jesus, that you also might be unconverted. So this woman is a living illustration for us. And the second thing we see here very quickly is that we learn that unrestrained devotion like Mary had for the Savior is to be the increasing experience of the Christian. And that means that rather than a declining devotion and affection and love and worship for the Savior, we are actually to be progressing in our affection, love and worship for the Savior, because that's what the gospel does. It transforms us into those kind of people It has a transforming effect on us because when one has been transformed by the gospel through Christ, extravagant love, devotion, and worship cannot and will not be hidden. It will be absolutely obvious to everyone around you that you are a very, very passionate lover of Jesus. And that's to be the increasing experience of us. So let me ask you a question this morning. Does your commitment to Christ appear to the world to be excessive and wasteful does anyone think that your devotion to jesus is extreme are you ever charged with that does anyone ever take notice of your devotion at all and if they do do they think that guy or that gal is a little excessive and actually and what i would argue for us this morning is that that should be happening from time to time People should be saying that about us from time to time. But sadly, the disciples were not like this woman. Instead, their hearts were cold. There's a indifference here. Now, the second area of unfaithfulness that we see in the disciples is found in verses 30 through 56. So we're going to skip this section on um, just the announcement that Judas is going to betray Jesus. And then there's the Passover and Jesus eats his last supper with his disciples. And then we have Jesus distributing the bread And the wine, and we have this passage, so we're going to move right from that into the second area of unfaithfulness and denial in verse 30. In verse 30, we read that when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. Now, think back. He had already said that one of them would fall away. Look at verse 21. Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And Jesus explains and expands that and says that not just one of you will betray me, but actually all of you will fall away from me at one level or another. So that's pretty serious stuff. And notice that Peter, notice how Peter responds here. He's like really confident in verse 33. He says, well, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And you, you read this and you're just like, you know, you wonder if Peter, if Peter's even listening to Jesus sometimes. Is he even paying attention? Is he even listening? I mean, how misguided and overconfident Peter is. And Jesus rebukes him. And Jesus says to him, truly, I say to you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. This very night. He's saying before this night is over, Peter, you're going to be the worst of them all. You're going to deny me to the face of somebody. You're going to do that three times. And then you're going to say that you don't even know me, Peter. And then you're going to do that three times. And that's going to happen before tomorrow. And Peter didn't want to deny him. Let's let's try to assume the best about Peter. Certainly he didn't want to deny him. and, and, And he wanted to love Jesus. And I think he was sincere when he said he wanted to die for Jesus. And that's to be commended, isn't it? But what's not to be commended is his presumption. And it just goes to show that, you know, folks, we need to have a more sober assessment of ourselves. First Corinthians ten twelve. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Make note of this overconfidence that we will not fall away is often the first sign that we will. Overconfidence that we will not fall away is often the first sign that we will, because pride comes before a fall. And this is a dramatic expression of Peter's pride. In fact, the word deny is actually stronger than the word fall away. R.T. France says this. He says, a threefold denial, which is what Peter did, a threefold denial is not simply a momentary succumbing to pressure. It's a deliberate disassociation. This is not merely desertion. It's flat out denial. And think about the gravity of that, and that's exactly what we see in verses sixty-nine through seventy-five. the The disciples flee; they all run away, and many of them, no doubt, they hit the hit the road. They run for the city limits. They just want to get out, just get out, just get away from all the all the the soldiers and all the all those who are coming to to to, to get Jesus. And in verse sixty-nine, we see that Peter sort of trails along behind. He's like maybe one of the only disciples that has enough courage. To follow Jesus in his arrest, he tags along behind and he's sitting outside the courtyard while Jesus is being questioned by Caiaphas, the high priest. And one of the servant girls, probably an 11, 12, 13 year old girl, just a little girl is sitting outside in the courtyard and she just looks up at him and she says, you were also with Jesus. I recognize you. And he just flat denies it to this little girl. And then another servant girl comes up and and, and to the, the bystanders and she says, hey, this man was with Jesus. And again, Peter lies. And this time in verse 72, he lies with an oath. An oath. He swears. I do not know this man. And then after a little while, others come up and they say, you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. And Peter becomes even more aggressive and he actually invokes a curse on himself and he swears, I do not know the man. Leave me alone. Get out of my face. I don't even know this guy. Who's Jesus? Stop talking to me about this. I don't know him. Leave me alone. And immediately the rooster crows. And then we read this horrible verse. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Have you ever come to the place of so much grief in your own heart for the way that you have hurt the heart of Christ That you sat alone in some dark place and you just wept. Have you ever been to that place? You just wept over your own sin and betrayal of Jesus in your life. And that's a terrible and yet at times necessary thing for us to do. To go to that dark place and to confess deeply and and poignantly to Jesus. I have failed you. I have failed you. Why did Peter cry? Well, he, he was ashamed of the one who had loved him so well. Have you ever cried because you disappointed Jesus? James Edwards puts it this way. He says, Peter's example is a warning to the disciples that faithful witness to Jesus is most important and most easily betrayed in simple and ordinary actions and words. It is in everyday matters that disciples are true martyrs. What's he saying? He's saying that he's saying, what about your what about your daily routine? What about your daily run of the mill life? What about your identification with Jesus at school or at work or at home with family and friends? And he's saying we, we must learn here from Peter's failure that, that we have all failed Jesus. And, and we must choose We what we do is we choose to watch Jesus from a safe distance instead of getting up right next to him in costly obedience. And that's so, so easy for us to do. We just don't want to get, we don't want to be swept up with all that controversy that Jesus is. And so we remain at a safe distance. And yeah, we'll come to church on Sundays. And yeah, we'll give Jesus a little bit of time here and there. But when it really comes to it and we're really under threat and we're really under persecution and we know we're going to get pushed back... We just, you know, we kind of let off the gas a little bit. We become very cordial, very polite, and we don't really want to talk about Jesus a whole lot, and we back away from him. And, and, and James, and James Edwards is making a good point here, is that true martyrs, disciples are true martyrs, and that martyrdom, which means witness, actually comes into play in the very ordinary things of life. Just how you identify with Jesus at work, and how you identify with him in front of your family members, and other things like that. So denial is the second area of unfaithfulness. The third is sluggishness. Verses 36 through 46. I mean, we could use other words like lethargy, apathy, indolence, slothfulness. Let's read verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Verse 38. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Verse 40. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, could you not watch with me one hour? Verse 43. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were very heavy. Verse 45. Then he returned to the disciples and he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? They can't even pray for one hour when Jesus needs them the most. The disciples are falling asleep. They're just out, out for the count. How, how quickly the noblest convictions, the strongest resolve we have fade away before a serious threat. Friends, I, I was just thinking about, I was examining my own heart through this sermon preparation this week. I was thinking that we have no idea. We have no idea how unfaithful we would become if faced with a serious threat. You know, like that fast. Like how unfaithful we could become. I mean, the disciples are just, I mean, abject failures at this point. And I I, I think knowing my own heart and knowing the heart of a man, knowing the heart of just us as weak, fallen, sinful human beings, I have no doubt that absolutely I could fail just like that. Just like that. Just like that. So easy, so easy, so easy. And we dog on these guys and we realize that same stuff is right in our hearts. I mean, think about this. These guys heard the voice of Jesus. They felt his breath. They observed his miracles day after day. And yet they still fell away and denied Jesus. And that is a warning to us this morning. And then notice the consummation of this unfaithfulness in verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs. And this is the fourth thing we see betrayal. So we move from denial now to betrayal, which is a stronger form of denial. Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss as it was prophesied. And then we read these sad words in verse 56. Then all the disciples left him and fled. All the disciples left him and fled. Remember verse 31 when Jesus says, you will all fall away because of me this night. Well, guys, guess what? That just happened. That just happened. They all fall away. They all leave. They all walk away from Jesus right here. Could And Judas is leading that pack. And Judas is doing it in a way that's very, very overt. And very in your face. Think about Judas. Think about his life. Could there be a more tragic existence? Is there a more tragic existence in humanity than Judas? Think about this. This is unbelievable. I mean, in contrast to Mary, the story of of Judas is just all the more jolting. You have Mary at the beginning of this chapter, who's this profound sinner who comes in and is just absolutely humbled in front of Jesus and repents of her sins and weeps in front of Jesus. And then you have Judas who's hanging out with Jesus every day, watching his miracles as his friend, as his confidant, as his disciple, as an apostle walking around, and he fails at the greatest point of his life. And, and, and this prophecy is being fulfilled. Jesus knows exactly what's going on. Psalm 41 says, a psalm that Jesus knew well. Even my close friends in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Or Psalm 5520, my companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter. Yet war was in his heart, his words were softer than oil swords. Amazing prophecy about Judas. And so it begins in verse fourteen. The then one of the twelve, look at fourteen, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and he said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity. To betray him. 30 pieces of silver. Of course, the question that comes into our minds is, was that really worth it? For 30 pieces of silver. And what would bring Judas to a place where for 30 pieces of silver, he would be willing to betray one of his best friends and and the greatest man that's ever existed in the history of humanity for 30 pieces of silver? It's insane. And you just read this and you just think, what in the world? Like, how do you get to this place how how do you even get there so they paid him 30 pieces of silver and he sought an opportunity to betray him and then the actual scene of betrayal takes place in verses 47 through 56 and the real tragedy here is that judas was not always this way and that's what shakes me about this text that judas was an insider that Judas was one of the good guys. He was an apostle. He had been given miraculous gifts. He was a preacher of the gospel. He was a man who had taken the message of the kingdom to the surrounding areas. Such a promising beginning for Judas. In fact, it's been said that next to Peter, James, and John, Judas was one of Jesus' closest disciples. And, and he had a good reputation at first. He did. And, and you know that little money bag that the widow dropped her mite in? that that little money bag that she cast her might in was put into the hands of Judas. You know why? Because he was he was he was made treasurer. And he was made treasurer because they respected him for the, his role and his gift and what he could do. I mean, he was a good he he was the right man for the job. He he was he he would be the equivalent of a of a of a Certified, accountant or something like that. I mean, he was, he was just the right man for the job and, and none of the disciples suspected him. In fact, when Jesus says in verse 18, one of you will betray me, it's not like all the disciples sat there and said, oh, I bet it's Judas, isn't it? No, you know what they said? They said, is it I, Lord? And they all went around, is it I? They were thinking about themselves. They weren't thinking about Judas. And so the pressing question for us is, Judas fell away. How do we avoid becoming like Judas? No, that's what I'm thinking. I'm reading this text thinking, I, I look, I'm bad enough. I see Peter all over me. I see the disciples fleeing from Jesus all in me. But the thing I really, really, really want to avoid is being like Judas. Having a profession, walking with Jesus for a number of years, having a having a a, a, a pretense of, of faithfulness about me, but then eventually walking away and turning away from my Savior forever. And, and and what do we what do we learn? How do we avoid that? Number one, I I want to say this: understand the subtle and self deceptive nature of his betrayal. Okay, it's not like this was really really grossly in in um uh intentional upfront upfront. Okay, so for Judas, his betrayal doesn't just happen immediately. It sneaks up on him slowly, but surely listen to this. His heart begins to grow more and more cold. His conscience grows calloused over time. His flesh begins to exercise dominance over his conscience. Okay, so if your flesh is beginning to win the war over your conscience, your conscience is getting harder. You're becoming more cavalier about sin. You care very little about your about about. About your sin. You're not sensitive to to, to those areas of sin in your life anymore. That's a very scary place to be. And, And let me just speak into your life here. A little sin. A little sin left unchecked. unrepented of. Always, always gives way to more. Every day that you go on in unrepentant sin. Is another plank kicked out of the bridge on the way back to God. It gets harder and harder to reconcile. It gets harder and harder to walk with God. Every day of rebellion. Slowly but surely, the conscience becomes hardened and you wake up and listen, you wake up and you find your place and you find yourself in a place you never thought you would be. And you say to yourself, how did I get here to this place in my life? And it's been said, I try to find attribution for this quote on the Internet. It's just all over the place. Someone said it was uh, attributed to Robbie Zacharias. I have no idea, but it says sin will take you further than you wanted to go. It will keep you longer than you planned to stay and it will cost you more than you're willing to pay. And how true, how true is that? And not only that, but think about this for a second that your sin doesn't just hurt you. Your sin hurts everyone around you. How selfish. And at the root of your sin is a self-absorption, a selfishness that devastates and destroys the people around you. Listen, if you're rebelling against God significantly in your heart, it's hurting your family and it's hurting your friends and it's hurting your church and it's hurting the people around you. And and you're so selfish, so selfish, a son or daughter rebels against God. The parents are weeping and praying while their son or daughter sleeps soundly in the room next door. Oblivious to the hearts of their parents that he or she is breaking. A wife lies in bed anguishing over the marriage that has fallen apart and and that is literally tearing at the seams. Listening to the deep breathing and snoring of her husband who is soundly sleeping so unplugged in his rebellion against God. And God is speaking to us in this moment. And what he's saying is, hey, man, you better wake up. You better wake up from that sleep. And you better realize that your conscience has become hardened and something is really sick inside. And you've got to run to Jesus. But let me give you hope here is that if Judas would have run to Jesus at any of these times, he could have found help. See, like all he needed to do, it's like the same story with Jonah. He's running away from God. And the only thing Jonah needed to do was tap the brakes, man. Just stop. Just get down on your knees and say, God, I am so messed up. Help me. But if you keep snoring and you keep sleeping and you just keep going on day after day with that hard heart, you will ruin your soul. You'll ruin it. And then notice, so it's subtle and it's self-deceptive. He doesn't even know. But then secondly, notice how sin moves from unintentional to intentional. At some point, Judas actually is intentionally sinning against Jesus while his betrayal is subtle and it progresses slowly. At some some point, he actually starts to actively betray the Savior. What had largely been a passive hardening of his conscience with only some outward manifestations is now full-grown. It's full grown. And you see, a little money for Judas was a great thing to him. Until now, he was poor. And and he ends up, before the story's over, becoming a total thief. He's a thief. In fact, John tells us that after Mary anoints Jesus with this expensive oil, okay, scene number one, okay, Judas is the one that stands up and complains about it. So Matthew doesn't tell us. He just says the disciples were indignant. But but John tells us the disciple who was most indignant, his name was Judas. And you know what Judas said? Judas said he was angry about it. And then John comments on this. The apostle John, he says, Judas said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. You gotta take the bag off in the corner, you know, pull a few things out, balance the sheets, pocket a few a little bit of change. I mean, it's incredible. It this is incredible. It's incredible and it's it's sad and it and actually what it's not incredible because we live in a day and age where this stuff happens all the time in the church. It's still happening. These guys, these charlatans who are leading these 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 ministries on on TV and other things may give your dollars, give your money, buy this thing. Just getting more money off God's people, you know, and, and getting rich off the church. And it's just unbelievable. It's unreal. And for Judas, Jesus was a means to an end. It's a utilitarian relationship. That's that's all his relationship with Jesus had become. At first, it was a friend and a confidant. And then slowly but surely, his heart fell away. And now it's like, man, I'm just in this for me and whatever I can get out of Jesus. So what is your relationship with Jesus this morning? Is he your treasure? Or are you using him for something else? Because Jesus will not be used, friends. Verse 24, woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed it would be better what if that man had never been born? You see, what's so sad about this is that Judas had plenty of opportunity to repent, as I said. In fact, the night before Judas sold his master into uh, in, in betrayal, what did Jesus do? Jesus washed his feet. It's unreal. John tells us he washed his feet the very night before. Such love, such closeness. Judas, you know what he should have done? He knew full well at that point that he was totally on this path of betrayal. He should have got down and said, Lord, if you're washing my feet, I'm going to betray you in like 24 hours. I quit. I bail on this project. Forgive me, God. I got to confess my heart. I'm about to do something really stupid. He should have repented right there. Or, or, you know what? He still had another chance at the Last Supper. When Jesus says, one of you will betray me. Judas should have popped up and said, it's me, Lord, it's me. I know it's me. I'm like, I've already got a plan worked out. And he should have repented. And then guess what? He still had another opportunity, even in the garden. It wasn't too late. Judas could have said, Lord, I'm in the process of betraying you right now. And, and and here's these guys and I brought them with me. But 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 I quit on this plan. I quit on this plan. I, I, I'm i stopping you. You're not allowed. You're not allowed to arrest Jesus. I mean, he could have stopped himself, but he didn't do that. He squandered away all of his opportunities for repentance, squandered him. So this is the unfaithfulness of the disciples. OK, We see it all over the place. Indifference, apathy, lethargy, denial, betrayal. And folks, this is the stuff that's in us. It's in us. But we can't stop there. Because if I stop there, I'm giving you a stone and not bread. Because the Bible calls us to... It's not about us, it's about Christ. And calls us to be wowed by Jesus And I want you to see against the backdrop of this great unfaithfulness that Jesus has resolved to save them even more than ever before. In spite of all this. So let's look by let's 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 end by looking at the faithfulness of Jesus. And I want to show you first his loyalty. Verse 31, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd. And my question to you is, all right, who's the I there? I will strike the shepherd. Who's the I and what is this about? Well, this is a quotation from Zechariah 13. And we read in verse 1 of Zechariah 13 that on that day, there will be a fountain open for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanness. Does that remind you of a hymn? There is a fountain and it's filled with blood. Drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Amazing. But where does that fountain come from? Verse 12. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. This is God speaking, God the Father. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. Who's that man? That man is Jesus. Now, the ultimate fulfillment of this is Jesus being struck by God for his people. It was God who pierced him. He was pierced for our transgressions. Jesus is saying here that I'm going to be struck. God will strike me. And the purpose for me being struck is that so I can open up a fountain for you to get your sins cleansed. And washed away. That's Jesus interpretation of this prophecy of Zechariah 13. Now think about this in the midst of saying and what he just said here is you're all going to fall away from me in the midst of saying that Jesus says, even though you're all going to fall away from Me, I'm still going to take God's wrath for you. I'm still going to be punished. I'm still going to absorb that penalty. I'm still going to open that fountain for people who want to leave me and disown me. I am still going to Calvary and I'm going to open that fountain for even you. For you. That's Jesus. But notice also in verse 32, the promise. After I'm raised up, I'll go before you in Galilee. Now, this is a really, really encouraging verse because it says two things. Number one, what a great verse. He's saying that that my death is not going to be the last word. What's going to be the last word? Resurrection. Right. I'm going to be raised up. I'm coming back. I'll be raised up. And that's not all. He says, I'm not only going to be raised up. I'm going to go. I'm going to go before you. What does that mean? I'm going to go before you. Well, I I thought thought these guys were all going to fall away. And it's true, they did, they did all fall away. But here's the thing. Jesus is saying, I'm gonna go get you. I'm going after you. You might run away, but Jesus is not going to leave you. Like you might be running in the wrong direction and Jesus is saying, I am going before you. I will get you. I will collect you. I will stop you. I will save you from yourself. From self-destruction. I'm coming after you. He's going to go to Galilee and he's going to get those that left him. Now, think about that. Jesus knew that these guys were going to forsake him, deny him. And yet he still said, I'm going to the cross. And he said, and guys, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. I'm going to meet you in Galilee. You just said you were giving up on me. You just walked away from me. But guys, let me remind you that I'm stronger than you and I'm going to get you and I'll see you boys in Galilee. It's just amazing. I'll see you in Galilee. The men who are going to fall asleep on him in the garden, to the men who are going to run away from him at the greatest hour of need, when he needs somebody to be there for them, he stands alone. He's resolved in the strength of his of his character to face Caiaphas alone, to face Pilate alone, to face flogging alone, to face the cross alone, to face the wrath of God alone. And in the midst of all that, he says, "Men." I'll see you in Galilee. I will see you in Galilee. I'll finish my mission. You may quit on me. You may quit your mission, but I will not quit my mission. And I will see you in Galilee. And people wonder, and people wonder... If there is such a thing as perseverance of the saints or the preservation of God for his people and people question whether or not people when they're saved, they're always saved. And I just want to tell you, because Jesus is who Jesus is, you will not lose your salvation. You won't. You can't because he is stronger he who is in you is stronger than he who is in the world and jesus remains faithful to you when you are faithless when you are faithless when you are, when you deny him and betray him when you are faithless he remains faithful that's our hope that's why we are a church that's why we worship what a god what a savior has there ever been such love no husband no wife Nobody can have this kind of loyal love. But Jesus does. His love never fails. Never. It's just amazing. James Edwards says the kingdom of God that Jesus brings cannot be spoiled by human failure. It cannot. Jesus is more determined to keep us than we are determined to be kept. J.C. Ryle says this. Let us take comfort then, brothers, That the Lord Jesus does not cast off his people because of their failures and imperfections. He is merciful and a compassionate high priest. It is his glory to pass over the transgressions of his people. And to cover their many sins. Like it's his glory to cover your sin. That's what he delights in. Is covering your sin. That's his glory. I mean, I feel so... I feel so like Peter. Jesus, I've denied you in so many ways. And he just said, Jonathan, it's my glory to cover you, son. Why, Why does he do that for me? He's so good. He's so good. Why does he do that for us, friends? He's so, he's so good. Jesus is determined to save us at our worst. At our worst. He's not surprised when we fail him. He knows what you're going to do tomorrow. And he still loves you. And that's the great theme of this text. But secondly, notice his love. Verse 36, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. And he says to them, such a simple command, remain here and watch with me. And though they had never heard such things come out of Jesus' mouth, Jesus was strong. Jesus was resolute. Jesus was the man that they looked to when they struggled. Jesus was the one they always looked to for strength. But now they look at him in this crucible of human weakness. And he says to them, men, you have no idea how I feel right now. My soul is so troubled. I want to die. Why is Jesus shuddering here? Why why does he ask his father to remove the cup? Why does this Jesus who walked so boldly and courageously into Jerusalem on his way to death, why does he now begin to backpedal? It seems it's because Jesus knows that he's facing so much more than his own death. He knows that he's on the verge of facing the eternal and infinite wrath of God. It's because it's one thing to stand before God and face your own sins. It's another thing to stand before God and face the sins of the whole world. Of all those that would repent and trust in Jesus, that's what causes him to shake. It's not the whip. It's not the betrayal. It's not the act of crucifixion itself. It's it's having to face the unmitigated, the unrestrained wrath of God for sin. And we see Jesus literally at the point of emotional breakdown. And you need to see in this love, you need to see his love for you. You need to see his struggle for you when he looks into the cup and he thinks about you. When he looks into the cup of God's wrath and he thinks about the church. His church. And he thinks about the unparalleled glory of his father. And so he says, Father, if there's no other way then I'll drink it. See, because his desire is to obey the father is stronger than his desire to serve himself. What love. And then notice finally the last thing. Is his resolve. Verse 45. Then he returned to the disciples and he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? The NIV translation says, are you still sleeping and resting? The hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. Now I see resolve here. I don't know about you. I don't know what you see here, but I see great resolve. Jesus is resolved to accomplish his mission because think about it. His first prayer was God, if it's possible, let this cup pass. But his second prayer is, God, if, if it can't, if I can't have this, then let your will be done. In other words, Think about this. Do you see the difference? Notice what Jesus does. If he can't have his desire, does he? what does he do? Does he work up his own plan? Does he do an end around? Does he abort the mission? Does he reject God and do things his own way? Does he quit? Does he become embittered and angry and spiteful and vengeful? Does he talk disparagingly of his father in front of his disciples? Does he quit on his father? No. What does he do? He embraces the mission with resolve. He seeks a way through, not around God's mission, through the mission. He says, so if there's no other way, then we will be in this together, God. And as I go through this, I relish the opportunity to learn about you in a whole new way, God. And I embrace this journey with you, God. Your way is best, God. Your way is best. Friends, that is total surrender. And maybe some of you, you've got the bad news from the doctor. They say it's terminal. They say it doesn't look good. And you say, God, is there any other way? Can you let this cup pass from me? And and, and, and if it's not going to pass, here's what you say. God, I'm in this with you. I relish the opportunity to learn about you, oh God. To walk with you in this journey because I know that you won't fail me. And you're totally surrendered. God is asking for true surrender, not mere conformity with dry eyes. Inward disposition, heartfelt surrender. And when we do not get there, we remain at odds with God. And broken fellowship with God is a terrible choice. But you know what? Being with God in that dark valley is a great place. It's a great place. Because you're going to get a new body someday. And even if you die, you're going to... And even if your loved one dies, you'll be reunited with them in Jesus. And finally, notice verse 44. So leaving them again... He went away and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Okay, now I just want to make one point here. He repeats his prayer. This is not vain repetition in Matthew 6. Jesus says, do not go on and utter vain repetitions when you pray. But this is not vain repetition here. Okay, he's repeating the same words. Vain repetition is some rote, mechanical, memorized thing that your heart doesn't even feel. And you just go through it every day and you say your thing. That's not this. This is repeating a submissive prayer to God from the heart is the road to surrender. Do you like, can you feel this? Listen, to say to God, she's yours, God, to say to God, I trust this situation to you, to say to God, have your way in this, Lord, to say to God, I trust you, Lord, to say to God, God, you're good and you do things right. That's a prayer of submission. And you can repeat that as much as you want In fact, you should repeat it because the very act of doing that is a place of surrender. Holy surrender to God. Give it to God. And you may have to pray those prayers all day long because you know what? You have an enemy against you and the enemy wants you to walk in anger and bitterness. But God wants you to release that place of resistance in your heart and move forward by his grace. God wants you to let it go. Let it go. So what if you've been hurt? So what if you've been wronged? Lay it down. Lay down the fight. Give it to God. He will make it right. The enemy wants you to ruminate on the past, to dwell on the hurt, to focus on the anger But God would have you lay those emotions at his feet, hear me, and lift up your hands and worship and say, you're a good, good father. It's it's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. Keep and just keep singing. Just keep singing that song. I've heard a thousand stories of what they think you're like, but I've heard the tender whispers of love in the dead of the night. And you tell me that you're pleased. And I'm never alone. So, friends, I conclude with two points of application. Some good news and some bad news. The bad news first. all right? I'm a bad news first guy. I like that first because I want to end on a good note. Here's the bad news. And there's actually a, a silver lining of good news and the bad news. Okay, here's the bad news. We are made the same stuff the disciples were, are made of in this text. We are frail. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. As Jesus says, we're determined to stay the course, but we continually fall. We struggle in our walk. We sleep when we should be praying. We run in fear when we should stand in faith. We're made of the same stuff. Okay. The good news in that is that is that Jesus sees them through that. Okay. Now, here's the good news. Jesus is the same as well. Jesus is also the same. What he did for them is what he will do for us. He is faithful. He pursues us when we flee from him. He loves us when we are unfaithful. He picks us up when we fall. And he will never leave us or forsake us. You will deny him. But he won't kill you for that. He will be killed for you for that. So I invite you to come to Jesus this morning afresh. If you're not a Christian, I invite you to come to Jesus and all of your sin and brokenness. He already knows all about it. There's nothing hidden from him. So just bring all of your sin and unfaithfulness to this faithful God this morning and tell him, Lord, you, I need you to do something about this mountain of sin here. I need you to cover it in your blood. And I and I want to come to you, to your fountain for cleansing. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul. That means defiled. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. So so some of you just, you need to go there. That's your thing. You've got to go there for the first time. And then Christian, for you... And just one more thing, if you're not a Christian, do you think he's going to turn you away if you go to him today? No. He will not turn you away. And dear friend, believer, Christian, come to him and find renewed hope and confidence this morning. Okay? Fresh, find fresh hope in your struggle with sin, that when you sin, number one, it does not surprise Jesus. And he will treat you the same way he treated his disciples. With patience and love and forgiveness And mercy. And he'll do that for the rest of your days. Because when we are faithless. He remains faithful. And that's the message of Matthew 26. Let's pray. Father. Just amazing. So full. So full. So full is your word. So nourishing. So revitalizing. So strengthening. And so we come broken, we come defiled, we come sick, we come helpless and we look to you and we say afresh again as a congregation, we confess that our hope is in you, God, and we run to you afresh this morning for mercy and we run to that fountain and we say you are a good, good father in Jesus name, amen. Stand and respond.